Antonio Meucci invented the telephone. You probably knew that. The paperwork is clear. He was a poor inventor with barely enough money to apply for the first patent. His wife, Elsa, pawned all of his materials, and it took him years to finally find enough stuff to send Western Union, hoping they would adopt his new technology. Finally, he gave up heartbroken. And it was his lab mate, Alexander Graham Bell, who ended up with all the profits and all the fame. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. So if Alexander Graham Bell didn't invent the telephone, and he didn't, what did he invent? Well, he invented the Bell system. The Bell system was the forebearer of the universal telephone network that we all take for granted, that you can pick up the phone and call anywhere in the world, and the same system will connect you to that person at the other end. Shortly after Bell had patented the stolen telephone invention, he had a problem. The problem was it was too difficult for one man or one organization to wire the entire United States and the world for telephone service. At one point, there were 6,000 phone companies in the United States, and it was impossible to pick up a phone in New York and call California. And part of the magic of the Bell system, which evolved over the course of decades, was interoperability. And this is a podcast about the magic of interoperability and the risks that all of us face when it's not there. How did Rockefeller get so rich, the richest man in history? Well, it's not something that's going to make him a poster boy for good behavior. What he did was gather together some competitors and make it so they were big enough to do a deal with the railroads so that they would get rebates when they shipped their oil from one place to another. With those deals in hand, he went to new competitors. And he said to those competitors, if you don't join up with our trust, we will ruin you. We have monopolized the materials necessary to make the barrels. We have a deal with the railroads. We will lower our prices to below what it costs you to even ship your oil, and as a result, you will go bankrupt. So, you can't get the distribution that you need without us. Join in or go under. And he did this over and over and over again, creating a system where independent people, regardless of how innovative they were, were unable to get their product to market. Just five years ago, something called the beer tie system in the UK was outlawed. How did it work? If you wanted to open a pub, you had two choices. You could find your own location, figure out how to pay for it, 
outfit it with everything it needed, and then buy beer from anyone you wanted. Or you could do a deal with one of the giant breweries, and the brewery would take care of a lot of the expenses for you, and your rent would be lower. But in exchange, you would pay 60 pence more for the beer that you were buying because it included a repayment for all of the things that the brewery had given you. You were tied up with them. Well, this is attractive for a new pub owner, but over time it's estimated that as many as half of them were making minimum wage beholden to the brewery. And if you're a new brewer trying to break into the market, you can't sell to those pubs. As a result, the existing dominant brewers stayed dominant. Or consider the simple example of movie theaters. If a few movie studios own all the theaters, which used to be the case, it's impossible for a director or a producer who doesn't get produced by the dominant studio to have anybody see their movie. Ted Turner used this idea of carriage to his advantage because he owned the cable companies. That meant that if you wanted people to watch your network, you had to do a deal with him. And a large reason why it costs so much to get cable TV to your home is that the cable company keeps a significant slice of what you're paying to each one of those extras that you're adding to your list. If all of this sounds a little like net neutrality, it should. Net neutrality sounds complicated because the people who are opposed to it want it to sound complicated. But it's actually pretty simple. What it says is that if you're going to build a pipe to people's houses, a pipe where you are probably going to have a monopoly, where in most towns you can't choose between two or three or four or five different pipes, there's one pipe. If you are the provider of the pipe, net neutrality requires that you treat all the traffic the same, that you don't do a beer tie-up, that you don't give some people an advantage and charge other organizations more. And the reason is simple, because when the new person comes along, we're back to the days of John D. Rockefeller and the trains, that if someone is forbidden from having distribution, then they're unable to get to the scale they need to run their business. Most of this wouldn't happen if it weren't for the fact that government isn't perfect. And one reason that government isn't perfect is that lobbying works. We know that lobbying works. And then the question is, how does that influence what's going to happen next? Well, as Tim Wu has pointed out, the people who are most likely to be effective lobbyists have money and not too many competitors with diverse interests. In fact, if you can group together a few competitors in a field, they can lobby far more than the millions of consumers who have a little bit of interest, but not a lot. So if we look at the issue of net neutrality, for example, 
AT&T, Verizon, one or two other companies are willing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars arguing against net neutrality, that pharmaceutical companies are willing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars arguing against government regulation in pricing, even though it's shown that it will save them billions and billions of dollars if they win. As a result, scale, scale that comes from a lack of interoperability, the scale that comes from forbidding others to join in and connect into what you're doing and maintain their independence means that established competitors can use the government as a cudgel to help them insulate themselves from innovation. So questions like, who can sell to this store? Who can talk to this user? These are things that independent innovators want the freedom to have something to do with. Consider the bar exam. It used to be that anybody could walk in to a bar exam, and if you passed it, you could be a lawyer. But then they changed the rule to say you can only be a lawyer if you pass the bar exam after going to an accredited law school from this list of law schools. That makes it really hard for an innovator to show up and say, for one quarter of the price and one quarter of the time, we can train you in what you need to pass this exam and do this work. I've got a million examples. Here's another one. Consider the difference between a Nintendo back in the day and a record player. Back when Nintendo had its first heyday, a software company, a company that made computer games, couldn't make Nintendo cartridges without licensing the Nintendo patent. What that meant was, if you had a really exciting game, but Nintendo didn't want you to make it, you couldn't make it. Compare that to the record player. Anybody who wants to can make a vinyl record. All vinyl records play on all record players. So the question is, which is more likely to lead to innovation? Centralized control over who's allowed to make a cartridge or an open system where someone who has a neat idea can plug into it? Back when AOL ruled the internet, before the World Wide Web had caught on, Ted Leonsis talked about the idea of carriage. Carriage is an idea that comes from the cable TV companies. Carriage means that if you want your site to be seen by people, it's got to be on AOL, and AOL will get a piece of it, and AOL will get to decide. That's really different from the fact that anyone who wants to can build a site on the internet, on the World Wide Web. One of the things that undermined AOL, CompuServe, and Prodigy was the fact that email was interoperable. Anyone who matched the API, the system of rules, could send or receive email. The company I built, Yoyodyne, worked with all of those companies because we were able to build our software off the site because we were using email to correspond back and forth to their members. Well, once email expanded to the World Wide Web, what it meant was that if you could browse the web from inside CompuServe or browse the web from inside AOL, suddenly carriage didn't matter so much because someone could build a website without their permission. 
So we get back to this idea that what established players want to do is control distribution, control technology, control access to users, control labor, who's allowed to touch this thing, and control government regulation to keep innovators from coming along. This battle is never ending because what consumers want is the ability for innovators to plug into existing systems. They want someone with an innovation to be able to make a toaster that they can plug into a wall socket without the industry that makes toaster ovens having to say yes or no, whether that's okay or not. When they broke up the Bell companies, they made it so that you could buy your own telephone and plug it into the wall without having to ask AT&T's permission. So the heart of this is to understand that as citizens, we have to be ever vigilant about maintaining APIs, open access, the ability of someone with a new idea or something new to say to plug into systems that the people who run those systems want to keep closed, that they want to maintain a monopoly on, a walled garden. And the second thing is that we as entrepreneurs, as small business people, as people who are building organizations, need to be aware that we too have the same instinct to close down the system, to shut down the API, to limit the inputs and the outputs because it feels like we have more control. Out there somewhere is the next Antonio Miucci, someone who might not have 250 bucks to buy a patent, somebody who might not have the patience and the resources to get over the hurdle that a monopolist doesn't want them to get over. And our job as people who want to change the culture for the better is to help that person be found, help them find us, and help them change things for the better. The late, great Lenny Levine used to say, you can't say you can't play. What does that mean? It doesn't mean there are no rules. It doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. In fact, there are plenty of rules. But if you follow the rules, you get to play. If you meet the standards, you get to play. And the ability to play brings diversity to the table, diversity of population, diversity of ideas, diversity of outcomes. And that diversity leads to connection and it leads to forward motion. What we know is that every healthy community, every healthy infrastructure, institution, economy is based on the innovation that comes when play happens, when people and institutions interact, when new ideas show up in a way that makes things better. So we must fight every day against these institutions' self-preservation instinct, which is actually incorrect. Their instinct to lock things down, to tell people who can play and who can't play, to make rules that are impossible to follow so only the insiders get to stay as insiders. You can't say, you can't play, is a great way to make things better. Thanks for listening. In a second... We'll be back with answers to your questions from last time. 
As always, we truly love to hear from you. Visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and look for the appropriate button. There are show notes for each one of our past 50-plus episodes. Also, if you visit akimbo.com, you can see our new page about all our upcoming workshops. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. We got three really juicy questions this week that I want to try to answer, each super different from the other. Here's the first one. Hi, Seth. Casey from Seattle here. Thank you for the gift of your podcast and your books. They have really meant a lot to me. Um, My son is a junior in high school, and he wants to major in aerospace engineering and eventually build rockets. Uh, He's an avid reader, and I want to encourage his continued education outside of the classroom. And so I wanted to know, what are three books you wish you had read before graduating college, whether they were published just this last year or 100 years ago? Thank you so much. What a great gift to give to your son and what an impact books can make if we read them in the right way at the right time. So here's a few that I'll tee up for you. When I was in high school, I read Gödel Escher Bach by Hofstetter. It was terrific. It still is. The modern version of this book by David Deutsch is called The Beginning of Infinity. I'll be talking about that in a future episode, but it is accessible and mind-blowing. And as a high school student, the idea that you can think bigger simply by thinking, by choosing to think bigger, to see this is a game changer. It's eye-opening. It helps a student, a young person or an old person, realize they have way more potential than the world often reminds them that they do. The second one, a book I've mentioned before, is Just Kids by Patti Smith about her relationship with Robert Maplethorpe. And for me, what this book did, I listened to it in audio, it might be the best audio book ever made, is helped me see how deep emotions can run, not in fiction, but in nonfiction, and how carefully they can be exposed and how generous one human can be to another. And then the third one, let's do them as a duet. Your choice, either Secrets of Closing the Sale or See You at the Top by the inimitable Zig Ziglar. Well, I looked at the lady, and it wasn't unkindly, but firmly I said to her, yes, and you know, ma'am, I'm afraid your problem is about to get worse. She said, what do you mean? I said, I believe they're going to fire you. The late Ziglar was a sales trainer, motivational speaker, pioneer of relentless positive thinking, and high school kids, especially today, could use a big dose of that. So I hope they help. Thanks for the question. Hi, Seth. My name is Richard. I'm a psychotherapist in San Francisco, California. And over the past few months, I've been taking a deep dive into the world of marketing and how it relates to the business of psychotherapy. The business practices that I've inherited from this field 
I've intuitively, since I began my practice, felt not quite in alignment for me. And through this journey of exploring marketing, I've made a lot of interesting discoveries and things that I want to change from the status quo of how this business is done, meaning how people market themselves and connect to people that could really use their services. But um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or insights or even paradigm shifting ideas that you could offer to psychotherapists or coaches or consultants, uh, anybody that works one-on-one helping others. I've really, really appreciated how you've deconstructed Uh, so many other businesses and professions. And what is it that we don't know yet or that we're not seeing yet that would help us to connect even more with the people that could be most helped by us? This question comes up a lot. Let me talk about coaches first and then therapists a little bit. The thing about being a coach is that you don't need a permit or a license and everyone at some level is qualified to do it. So there's a huge surplus of coaches, and the hardest part of becoming a coach is getting clients. The challenge, of course, is there's only two kinds of people in the world, people who have a coach and people who don't. People who have a coach aren't looking for a coach, and people who don't aren't looking for a coach either. So the only way to get clients, if you want to get clients as a coach, is either to persuade someone to fire their existing coach and hire you, not easy, or to persuade someone who doesn't have a coach that they need one, not easy. So here's my suggestion, and it works for therapists too. The problem with coaching and a lot of therapy is that it's private, that for whatever reason we've decided it's even a little shameful. It's something we don't talk about. We are happy to talk about the fact that we went sneaker shopping. We are happy to talk about things that we are buying or selling or throwing out or giving away. But for whatever reason, we're not eager to talk about these other activities. Because we don't talk about them, people don't hear about them. Because they don't hear about them, they don't get normalized. It's not a people like us do things like this situation because we don't know that people like us are doing things like this. So there aren't many short stories I wish I had written but one of them is definitely Fight Club. And the idea that the first rule of Fight Club is that we never talk about Fight Club has an inverse, which is that if you want your project to grow, the first rule has to be we always talk about it. So my advice for coaches who are getting started and my advice for therapists who want to make a difference, group therapy, group coaching. When you do group coaching, The imperative is you've got to invite other people to join the group because the group works better when good people are in it. And when you are in group therapy, if the group therapy takes a posture that the thing we are talking about is important enough to talk about together, then the word spreads. The delicious irony of the magic that Alcoholics Anonymous is able to do for some people is that it's not anonymous. It's not anonymous. We've all heard about it. We all know someone who's in it because the active members bring in other people. The act of paying it forward is part of what it means to be in that circle. So this doesn't fit the traditional Freudian model of lying on a couch by yourself, but 
There's work to be done in spreading the help that a generous, talented, insightful, empathic coach or therapist can bring to the table. And if it's not spreading, it's because it's hard to talk about. So if you build that into the work you do, you might be able to address that. Hello, Seth. This is Nick from Hastings on Hudson, New York. I don't know if this is the right form to ask, but I recently read your blog post, Embracing Externalities, on March 8th and really enjoyed it. And it prompted some pretty intense questions. Um, so one of the problems that I see occurring in our current society is that regulation and the community's attempt to build the external costs into the way business is done is often reactionary only occurring after we see definitive proof that the industry is causing a problem, right? We get a silent spring book after DDT is endemic to our environment or pushback on cigarette advertising to children after proof that the addictive and carcinogenic properties of tobacco can't be ignored anymore. Also, the increasing power of technology and globalization work hand-in-hand to allow the ramifications of our actions to become much more impactful before we have a chance to react to them. Do you see any way that a community can reasonably try to anticipate problems and mitigate them before they're out of control while still allowing for healthy innovation? As I understand it, Amish communities often debate about whether introducing technologies will help or hinder them in achieving their larger goals, goals like bringing their community closer to each other or to God. And they do this before they incorporate them in widely into their daily lives. Would you see this as a model that would work on a larger scale? Or is responding to crises rather than anticipating them intrinsic to our cultural fascination with physical progress, innovation, and improvement? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Thank you so much. I love this question, and thank you for the reference at the end. As Kevin Kelly has told us about Amish communities, that's exactly correct, that Amish communities are not Luddites. There's plenty of tech in Amish communities. And nerds in Amish communities will raise their hand and volunteer to take on a new technology and then bring a report back to the community. So I don't think it's okay to say, but now the world we live in is too big that we have to surrender our future. Because what we have done is accepted the fact that a certain kind of capitalism practiced in a certain kind of way is just fine. No permits necessary. Go, go, go. There are plenty of other forms of development, industrialism, and capitalism where you do need a permit. You can't just start selling a pacemaker that you made in your garage to anybody, any doctor who wants to install it in anybody's chest. I don't think many people want the FDA to stop inspecting pacemakers. I think that people would be astonished and disturbed to discover that almost all the pacemakers that have been installed to this date have a deep security flaw in them that could allow a bad actor to adjust or turn off their pacemaker from outside of their body. That's a fail. It's a fail because what we did was we relied on large organizations and the ratchet of capitalism to move things in the direction we hope that they will move. But abdicating that, And waiting until there's an emergency, as you point out, is not a particularly productive path, particularly if capitalism is moving faster than ever before. If its swing weight goes up, if it has more impact than ever before. Because just as we discovered with nuclear weapons, 
You don't want to wait to the last minute because the last minute is probably too late. Here's a simple example of the conceptual underpinning that we need to shift in how we govern our culture. What we decided 200 years ago was that the ratchet of capitalism would largely be left unimpeded, that it is an evolution of a good sort, that it can go around and around and around. So when I was growing up, there were no billionaires. Now there are lots of billionaires. That is viewed as a sort of progress. But one of the shifts, as Lawrence Lessig and others have pointed out, is that as money accrues to the winners in capitalism, it is used to buy significant influence in politics, which means that politics is entrained with capitalism in the sense that they both support the other. The system can get out of whack. So if we make one conceptual procedural change, which is separating them again, making it so that money cannot buy extraordinary influence in politics, the theory goes that we will get back into balance. Will it always lead to the right answer? No, it will almost never lead to the right answer. But it is more likely to lead to a better cultural answer than not doing it. So there is no denying that industrial capitalism has made the world more efficient, in many ways safer, in many ways more comfortable than what we had before. No denying that. But that doesn't mean that we should accept as the default that everything it produces is just fine. Thank you very much. The hard part is coming up with a way for the culture, for the people, to be thoughtful about what the other rules are. I mean, we do have a lot of rules in place. You're not allowed to test your lawnmower on small children before you bring it to the market. It's not okay. It's not legal. It's not allowed. So the question is, how do we put the other guardrails in place? Because even dyed-in-the-wool capitalists who focus on industrialism are happy with many of the guardrails they've already come to accept. The fact is that when they turn on water, clean water comes out of the tap. The fact is they can drive across the country without being waylaid by a highway robbery. The fact is that systems that are built by the public work if we build them properly for the right reason. And the same thing goes for what are we going to limit? I don't know the answer, but we are in total agreement that there is a problem. And I'm really sure that the last minute is going to be too late. Thank you for surfacing this, Nick. I hope that we get our act together before it's too late. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? 
When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.